Good singing this morning. You may be seated. I'm going to dismiss these poor guys. They don't want to sit up here and listen to me preach. We weren't sure there was enough holes. You guys were wondering if they were going to sing to you. And I can tell you, you don't want that group singing to you. Maybe Brother Dewey, Brother Jason, Brother Dan, but... Well, it is good to have you here on this Resurrection Sunday morning. Glad you can be in your place. Glad that you could find your way to our place to worship with us this morning. John chapter number 20 in the Bible, if you'll turn there with me. Easter Sunday, as it is often called, Resurrection Sunday, as I like to call it, is one of the two high and holy holidays in the Christian faith, right? If I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to church, I'm at least going to go on one of those two days, if not both of those days. So I'm glad you're here this morning. But know this as a pastor, I actually really appreciate and like preaching the other 50 weeks of the year. Not because there's more people here and it puts pressure on me, but because there's a lot of expectation on this day. Preacher, you better get it right. Pastor, you better preach exactly what is I, I was expecting. And the answer is, thanks. Thanks for that. The Bible always preaches itself, and that's what we'll do this morning. We'll read a lengthy passage together in your Bibles. John chapter number 20, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. Let me pause for a second. That other disciple here is John, the writer of this gospel. We keep reading. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scriptures that, they must ri- that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things unto her. 
Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Father, this morning... As we gather around the Word of God and the truth in it, may we know and see what is for us, and that is new life. The resurrection speaks to just one element that is essential for the human soul, and that is, in Christ, we are new creatures. Because of the resurrection, there is hope. Because of the resurrection, there is health. Because of the resurrection, there is a holiness that we can have. Bless us, I pray, in this hour, as we examine what we really celebrate every Sunday of the year, and that is the resurrected Lord. Bless in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to the regeneration of your soul. That means your soul being made new, being changed from that of the Adamic race to that of the divine race in the fashion and form of Jesus Christ himself. And it is our hope of heaven. The Apostle Paul framed it accurately when he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 13 and 14. He said, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith is also vain. In verse 16, he goes on and finishes by saying this, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. It means they're gone. He finishes by saying, If in this life only we have hope of Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Friend, I do not want to be miserable, and I don't believe you this morning want to be miserable either. The world is filled today on every hand with misery. Everywhere you look, it seems like nothing but bad news. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is truly good news. Hope comes in Jesus Christ. It comes from Jesus himself. God is the God of hope, the God of health, and the God of health for your daily life. Not just for a moment in your life, but every day of your life. There are four facts I put in the beginning of your notes this morning that we need to at least understand if we're going to understand the totality of the resurrection. First, there is, if you want to be saved, if you want to believe unto salvation, here are four facts that must be true, that you must believe. First, there is a God and that God created all things, chiefly mankind. If you don't believe in a God, then there's no possible way for you to be saved. Period. The second fact that must be true is this. Adam's sin brought separation or death and separation from Almighty God. His sin is what separated us. We died in Adam, Paul would say in Romans chapter 5. The third fact is this, God has prepared a way to rescue a plan of salvation from sin and from death for mankind. The fourth fact is this, 
Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment, the provider of that salvation. He came to die. He came to be buried. He came to rise again and accomplish for us both justification and redemption. Two big Bible words there, justification and redemption. They just mean what the hymn writer himself said long ago. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. This morning, I'm not going to look at the death of Jesus Christ. Tonight, if you come back to the service, we will be having communion. And we will be examining his death there, for that ordinance is given to the church, to the local assembly, so that we might remember the Lord's death until he comes or returns for us. This morning, I want to talk about resurrection, and in particular, resurrection life. The conquest of the king of kings, we might say. John chapter 12 through chapter 20 teaches us about the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming to us. That was last week's message on Palm Sunday, the coming of our king. Well, the coming of our king was not to conquer some measly empire of this earth, the Romans, but to literally defeat sin itself, and that is the conquest that we find this morning. The disciples mistakenly thought Jesus was going to come and simply conquer the Roman Empire. Jesus' first advent was to conquer man's natural enemy, not our native empires. So let's examine Christ's conquest this morning in this light from the passage that we read today. King Jesus, first in your outlines, conquered death. How did he conquer death? And the answer is with life. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, conquered death with his very life. The word life occurs 38 times here in John's gospel. Three words that you could circle or understand if you really want to understand the gospel of John, and that is life, light, and love. If you understand those three words and find them as you read through the gospel of John, you will understand the framework or the intent of that gospel writer. And this is the passage that we come from this morning. There is a life that is in him that is not in us until we have faith in Jesus Christ. Then the life of God comes into us. Then we are made new. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The life of God is manifest to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. He conquers death with his life. Listen to some of the passages that Jesus himself gives throughout the Gospel of John about life or what the writer of this Gospel says about the life that is in Jesus Christ. In John 1 and in verse number 1, the Bible says, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. This Word, this Logos, this Jesus Christ, this One is that was the one that was there in the beginning. And the Bible goes on to say, And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. It literally has the context in the reading of that, that all life sets in Him. It rests in Him. It consists in Him. And he says, and the life, or that life that rests in Jesus Christ, was the light of men. In John chapter 3, in verse number 16, all of us know this verse. It's Easter, so i got to throw one in that all of us know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should, what? Not perish. Remember what we read with the Apostle Paul earlier. 
If he's not risen, then those who are asleep, those who have died in faith, are perished if he's not risen. But he is risen. And so we find that all they should not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 36, John the Baptist says this of Jesus, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. That's the linchpin. That's the key. That's the secret, if you will. It's belief on the Son, but the wrath of God abideth on him, John goes on to say. In chapter 5 and verse 26, the Bible we find there says this, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The idea of giving here is the idea that he's granted it in this earthly existence. The life that Jesus had pre-incarnate is the same life that he had in his incarnation as he walked on this earth. Later in John 5 and verse 39, the Bible says this, Search the scriptures, Jesus speaking, For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. In chapter 6 and verse 33, he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking to them about Father Abraham and that he was there when Abraham was there. In that context, he says this, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. In John chapter 11, in verses 25 and 26, at the resurrection of Lazarus, when he brought Lazarus back from the dead, when he said, Lazarus, arise, and the Bible says, Lazarus came forth. In that context, he's answering the two sisters of Lazarus. And he says to them, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And Jesus asked them, just like he asked you this morning, Believest thou this? In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, we pick up and find what Jesus himself prayed, beginning in the middle of verse 1. Father, he says, The hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal. What is it? What's the secret? What must we know? That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ, the King of life, conquered death with his own life. His life, I put in your notes, delivers our salvation. Here in chapter 20 and in verse 8, we read of John the Apostle who comes to that tomb. And when he comes to that tomb, he halts at the door where Peter goes headlong in. And after Peter's in, he looks in. And John makes this statement in chapter 20 and verse number 8. He says... He saw, he's writing of himself, and he believed. He saw, and he believed. The sinner needs only to see Christ for who Christ is. The sinner only needs to see themselves for who they are. And the sinner needs only to believe that Jesus can save them from their state or their natural state of sinfulness from Adam. John sees the empty tomb, and in his heart, instantly he believes. He writes that they knew not in the very next verse. 
In other words, they had not fully grasped this idea of resurrection. They had seen Jesus give life to those who were dead, but they had never, no one had ever seen someone die and give themselves life again. But that's what Jesus did. Why? Because he is life. And so he conquers death by his very person and by his very power. It is the life of Jesus, not just the death of Jesus, that saves us. If Jesus had only died and not risen again, we would have only a Redeemer, but not a Savior. In other words, sin's penalty would have been paid, but without His resurrection, without His life, there is no fullness of salvation, for there is no power over sin. Jesus said this, as we noted last week in our message in John 12 and verse 47, at the end, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's why Jesus came. His life, secondly, I put in your notes, defeats our sin. He delivers our salvation, but his life also defeats our sin. In verse number 16, we see Jesus is speaking to Mary. Now, if you know anything about Mary Magdalene, you know she was, before Jesus Christ, a woman of ill repute. She was a woman who was not, Magdala was an area where those adulterous women would live. And everybody knew when they went to Magdala what kind of woman they were going to find in that city. So when they use her name, it is intentional in the Bible. They are saying what she was saved from and the kind of person she became, a godly woman. Because of the hope and the help that comes in Jesus Christ. In verse 16, we find her coming to Jesus Christ. We find her coming to that tomb, coming and seeking the one whom her soul loved. The Bible says in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her one word. Mary. He knew her by her very name. You say, well, of course, she traveled in his company. Look, there was a lot of people that traveled in his company. And if you are a student of the Bible, there were a lot of Marys that traveled in his company. But he knew each Mary by name. He knows you by the very hairs of your head, or some of us who have less each year. He knows who you are. He knows what you need. He knows exactly what your shortcomings are. He also knows where your success is found. We find in this instant the life over sin, the victory and conquest over sin by Jesus Christ is that he knows us and wants to personally help us. He saith unto her, Mary. Now he had already spoken to her. He asked her, what or whom are you seeking? But when he calls her by name, When he gets into the personal relationship with her, that's when it becomes very real. The answer she gives, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. Jesus' words are words of comfort and inquiry here. The angels had asked the group of ladies gathered, why seek you the living among the dead? Here Jesus reinforces this fact, and the fact is that he is alive. The life that flows from the risen Christ is the power over sin that we need. His death paid the penalty, but his resurrection life breaks the power of sin. He was raised for our justification. We live in what was once a Christian nation, and we are very quickly becoming a pagan, if not an atheist nation. We can all amen that in here, but you know whose fault it is? It's not the atheists. They've always been atheists. The fault for our decline lies with us, the Christians. We read a lot of conservative websites, but we don't do a lot of Christian principles. 
Pastor, I didn't come this morning, Kyle, to, to hear you give me a political speech. Well, good, I'm not giving you one. I'm giving you a biblical speech. If the power of sin is not broken in your life, then there's two reasons for it. One, you're not saved or you don't care. You've received salvation and you don't care about walking with the living Savior, walking in the newness of life. Two little girls will be baptized this morning. They've come over the last couple of weeks and said, we'd like to get baptized. And both their parents said, yeah, Easter Sunday morning seems like a great Sunday morning. That is a great Sunday, by the way, to get baptized. Or in their words, one says baptized and the other used to say baptized. But the point is, is that we'll get baptized, baptized, and baptized. The point in the baptism is that when we buried with them in the likeness of his death, there is a raised in the likeness of his resurrection. You know, a lot of Christians don't live in that risen state. They don't live with the conquest over the power of sin in their life. They just give in day after day after day, and they don't care. Here's what Paul said about that in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin. Is that true in your life? I mean, I wish it was true. Can I tell you it can be? I mean, free, free? Yes, if you live in resurrection life, if you live in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, if you live as he lived, yes, you can be free from sin. Does that mean perfect? Well, not on this side of heaven, but you can pursue perfection. and That's our goal. You became the servants of righteousness, he said. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh or the weakness that lies within you. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, in other words, compounding wickedness, if you will, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto that perpetual state of God, holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? In other words, what did that do for you? Nothing. You're now kind of like, yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't lived like that. Yeah, I wish I didn't have that story, Pastor, that I had to tell you. By the way, it's one of the joys of pastoring here. We have now are getting closer and closer to having 3,000 people through 15 years in our home over dinner. And we've heard countless stories. But you know what I've never heard from a believer in Jesus Christ who sits at our table? Yeah, I wish, Pastor, I could just go back to living like an unsaved person. Nobody's ever said that. Now, maybe they're not bold enough to say it at my table. That'd be pretty bold, by the way. Yeah, the Christian life is great, Kyle, but you know what I really like? <laughs> I like that old life before I say, do you like that life? Do you love it? What did it yield in your life? Damnation, separation, condemnation, all the things we'll look at this evening, all the reasons Christ had to die. He goes on, for the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, or to the end, with the objective, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ's life frees us to actually live as we were designed by God to live. Consider the absolute links that God went to to pay for and then break sin's power in your life. He died, was buried, and rose again. Those are the absolute links that God went to to redeem, rescue, and regenerate you. That's an amazing thought. Why would we want to sin then? 
You cannot continue in sin and say that you love Jesus. I beg for the Christian today, especially in the modern world in which we live, to wrestle with this thought. Why do I continue sinning if the power has been broken in the resurrection? If you love God, stop sinning. Jesus Christ is alive today, wanting Christians to use His life to break sin's power in their life. That's the key. That's the secret. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the Bible says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. What does he go on to say? But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If he paid your debt and if his power is broken, then you and I should live differently in this world. We live as Jesus would live. If he occupied your life, if he occupied your station in life, if he went to Toyota tomorrow, if he went to your office tomorrow, if he went to the hospital tomorrow, if he went to your job site tomorrow, how would Jesus live if he were on your job site? What would Jesus do? And the answer is that's the question. That's what Paul is telling us in Galatians 2 and verse 20. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ conquered death with life. Next we find in our outlines that he conquered the devil. How? How did he conquer the devil? I mean, I didn't see like a big fisticuff in the pages of Scripture on Calvary, did we? I mean, it's not like they wrapped up their hands, put on their boxing gloves, and they went to war. How did he defeat the devil? And the answer is, and I put two blanks here because I'm being a little pastoral, all right? As Lord and Lord. Now, the good Bible students will immediately go, ah, I know what you're talking about. And the rest of us will go, what is he talking about? Not to worry, I'll explain it for you this morning. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection are integral to our salvation. Jesus' death redeems us. Jesus' burial removes Satan's dominion, according to Revelation 1 and verse 18. And Jesus' resurrection allows for regeneration. That is making us new. Jesus' life, the power and presence of his very nature and essence, does this in us. He tells Mary, I am ascending to my Father to present all that I've accomplished to him. Why is that important? Why did John record those words in this gospel for us? The words are not recorded for the Father or the Son's benefit. They knew what was going on. They are recorded so that we might understand there is an order and sequence with God. There is a necessity for things to be done right. And in his resurrection, there was a proper procedure that was followed. In other words, his death was done correctly on earth as it was in heaven. His burial was done correctly. And all that was accomplished in that was right on earth and in heaven. And so too was his resurrection. Mary's reaction to Jesus revealing himself to her is instructive to who or to those who believe today. When she realizes through her grief and sorrow who it is that is standing before her, she cries out, Rabboni. Now, that's a word we don't use often. But it simply means chief, master, or prince. That's what Rabboni means. In the Aramaic, it would say, Lord, master, Christ, or the anointed one. 
So how did Jesus conquer Satan? We read this in Revelation 1 and verse 17. John is writing there a prophecy of what will be. In the process of that, he sees in chapter 1 a vision of Christ in his perfection. It's a fascinating story. If you want to go read it, you can read it in Revelation chapter 1. The vision of Christ in all of his conquering glory. In the middle of that, at the beginning of verse 17, John falls on his face dead before Jesus. Again, this is the same John who wrote this gospel. And that John is one who leaned upon the very chest of Jesus. He loved him. He was very young when he was an apostle. He was the youngest of the apostles. He was very immature. And as he grew into his maturity for those three years of ministry, he absolutely idolized the Lord when he was here. And he loved him, and Jesus loved him in return. But in this instance, he falls down dead because it's not a lovey-dovey situation. It's a conquest situation. It's the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in flesh. Here's what Jesus does, however. The Bible says he takes the right hand of fellowship, reaches it out and touches the shoulder of the apostle, and then says these words, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold... I am alive forevermore. Amen. You can amen what Jesus amens. Notice what he finishes by saying. And have the keys of death and hell. Isn't that amazing? Of hell and of death. I hold both of those keys. How did he do that? When did he do that? And the answer is in his death in his burial, and at his resurrection, as he's there presenting the penalty broken, the penalty paid, the redemption done, he's done it in the mercy seat in heaven, and he takes from the power of Satan, the control of sin, he takes the keys of death and of hell. It is also found in the twofold names for God in the Old Testament. They are Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and then Lord, capital L-O-R-D. You say, is there really a difference? Listen, if you went into your Bible, maybe you go on to Blue Letter Bible, or I use Olive Tree, or some study application, or if you get out your Old Testament Hebrew uh, interlinear Bible, and you go and find the words, you will find that there is a distinction between the capital Lord and the capital L, little O-R-D, Lord. There is a difference in the name. One is Yahweh Jehovah, and the other is Adonai. They are differences in the Old Testament, but they teach us what Christ was going to do, what the relationship was, and how the victory over the devil would come. The title Lord in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, is Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It speaks to His being. It speaks to His supremacy. And so I put in your notes here, as Lord in that role, He exercised supremacy. You find it used of God's interactions with Adam in the pre-fall garden. It says the Lord God, capital L-O-R-N-D, all capitalized, walked in the cool of the morning with him. We find it in the post-fall as well. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and this is where it applies to his resurrection life this morning. The Bible says, and the Lord God, there it is, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. They're not accidents in your Bible. It's not like the writers were like, oops, <laughs> I capitalized all of this one on that one. They mean something. Every word, Jesus says, not one jot or one tittle shall pass until all the law be fulfilled. In other words, every part of the Bible is important. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, oh, here's where the fisticuffs began. Because thou hast done this, what had he done? He had deceived the woman, and she had presented that fruit to Adam, and Adam, of his own free will, chose to take of it, obeying his wife, obeying the serpent, and disobeying God. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And notice... It, that seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. Who is that? It's Jesus. When did he bruise the head? By the way, he, Satan will bruise the heel of that promised seed. And make no mistake, he bruised the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin made its mark. Sin was placed upon him. Today in heaven, Jesus Christ in his glorified state still has nail prints in his hand, nail prints in his feet, and a riven side. Why? Because of the marks of sin and death. But may I say to you, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ conquers the old devil because he is supreme. Only a being with absolute sovereignty and supremacy, exercising both omniscience and omnipotence, could state 4,000 years before just how he would defeat his foe and do so exactly. Only God could do that. Satan in the garden had won just a battle. Christ ultimately, on the cross of Calvary and in his resurrection, would win the war. The second little note I put under this is, as the Lord, he established sovereignty. The Old Testament word Lord is Adonai, Adonai, and it expresses rule or authority and sovereignty. This was the actual word or the linking word that Mary Magdalene uses in referencing Jesus, Rabboni. She would effectively, if she were speaking it in the Hebrew or writing it in the Hebrew, it would be Adonai. It would be the idea of Lord, Master, Chief. The idea is that God is in control and always has been. His supremacy creates His sovereignty. He allows the consequences of sin to play out, yes. So sinfulness is rampant in our day. Death is present in our age, as it's been in every age. And difficulties in the life of all abound. God gave Adam sovereign rule, dominion in the garden of this created world. When Adam sinned and obeyed the voice of the serpent, he ceded control of this physical world over to the devil. The only way to break that dominion was for a flesh and blood human being to live perfectly, to die vicariously, to be buried completely, and to rise or take back his life victoriously. And that's what Jesus did. It is the vicarious death and the victorious resurrection that, Satan, that breaks Satan's dominion. Christ had not risen, then we would be hopeless to overcome Satan's influence and control. Jesus tells the questioning Greeks, as we studied last week, in John 12 and verse 31, this answer. This is what he tells them. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, Jesus says, shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Jesus Christ exhibited both supremacy and sovereignty as both Lord and Lord, there you go for this morning, in his death, burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. King Jesus conquered death with life. He conquered the devil as Lord. Third, we find that he conquered darkness, and we might ask how. Some of you might already know. Some of the teenagers always cheat. They look ahead to see if I give away the clues. The answer is with what? Light. The only thing that overcomes darkness is light. 
We live in very dark days. Darkness seems to be winning, but light always overcomes darkness. There seemed to be a cloud of darkness that was overpowering the disciples on this resurrection morn. They come to an empty grave, and many still struggle. If you read the other three gospel accounts and try to weave them together, it seems to be in the very few moments after his resurrection, and as they come on the very day, break of day, that they are all struggling as to what's happening, what's real, what's going on. They come to an empty grave, and many are struggling in the darkness of this world. By the way, the darkness of this world is pervasive. It's powerful. But I remind you that the light of Christ is able to overpower any darkness. Two thoughts. The light of His person is important. John, again, tells us this in chapter 1 and verses 4 through 9. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That John is John the Baptist, different than the gospel writer. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, capital L, the true light, if you will that all men through him, that is the light, the true light, might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Get that last statement for just a moment. Read those words again. Jesus Christ literally is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's amazing. Every child that is born literally has the spark of life. I preached on this in years past. The idea of when that moment of fertilization happens, there is a a spark, literally they have now studied, of zinc that happens. It's a flash of light, if you will, on the microscopic level. It is the spark of life because there is a spark of light that is at the Creator's hand. John chapter 8 and verse 12, dealing with the Pharisees who were condemning the adulterous woman, he says... To them, then spake Jesus again to them, not to her. He's just told that adulterous woman, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The very next sentence is verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. There's life and light married together again. To the blind man that he heals, in the process of healing him, one of the grossest miracles Jesus ever performed. There's a lot of things when I get to heaven I want to ask Jesus about, and that's one of them. He spits in the mud, and everybody else that he healed, he would do it in different ways. But this guy, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Man, couldn't I have gotten one of the cleaner ones? And the answer is you get what you get from God and enjoy it. John chapter 9 and verse 5, he says this. In the midst of that healing, he says this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. By the way, friend, if you're a member at Bluegrass Baptist Church, you are part of this local body, and the local church is literally the body of Christ in the world. That means we are the light of the world. That's our function. That's our responsibility. And if you live like the devil, like the defeated one, what will they see? If you live in the darkness of sin... What can the world see? Friends, how you live is therefore very important in our present dark age. Jesus is the light that conquers darkness. It is only through his resurrection that light can shine. The second thing I put in your notes there is the light for our pathway. 
John chapter 3 and verse 19, we all know it for John 3, 16, but Jesus is teaching Nicodemus a much broader principle here. And notice what he teaches him at the end of the whole teaching. Beginning in verse number 19, he says this, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Boy, Jesus, God knows us. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest or obvious. Obvious in what way? That they are wrought in God. Do your deeds, my friend, manifest the light of Jesus Christ in you? If I were to take an account of your actions this week, would I be able to say, yes, this is a light bearer or this is one who lives in darkness? If your actions do not, then does Christ's life and light dwell in you at all, we might ask this morning. Jesus' teaching seems to be a progressively more luminous light. As we are coming closer to Him, as we are doing more of the truth, the word doeth has the idea of an ongoing action. We're continually doing more and more of the truth. Then more and more of the light comes from us. And more it is obvious that God is working in and through us. King Jesus conquered death with life, the devil as Lord, darkness with light, and finally this morning He conquered doubt. How many a Christian I've met in my time pastoring that have said, Pastor, I just don't know. I kind of doubt my salvation. Don't. Well, how do I not doubt it? How do I overcome the doubt that I have? And the answer is with God's love. He conquered with love. His love is proven to us in John chapter 20. Look in verse number 19. Jesus shows up to this group of men and women gathered in the upper room and says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus proves his love by giving his peace to those gathered in his name. How do I overcome doubt? Through the peace of God that passes all understanding. The word peace here literally has the concept in the Word of God of being a tranquil state of our soul that is assured of its salvation in Christ so that that soul fears nothing from God and is content with where they are in their earthly lot. Could that be said of you? Are you at peace with who God has made you and what God has designed you for? His love is proven to us, but we find in verse 24 a second doubt. It's not just these who were generally unaware and were listening to hearsay and that Jesus had risen. Jesus comes in and says to them, peace be unto you. But after he's done that, there is one. Who is it that we call him? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Verse 24. But Thomas. One of the twelve called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord! But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side. Think of that statement. That's gross. It is. But the level to which doubt will take us, or to the degree and place that doubt will take us, it will take us to saying some really crazy things. You really want to take your hand and stick it into his pierced side? When we read these passages, sometimes we just gloss over like, oh yeah, I've read it a hundred times. Read it and understand what he's saying. 
His doubt was real. I will not believe. Notice verse 26. What does it say? And after how many days? <laughs> By the way, if you doubt God, you're going to cause yourself some heartburn for a while. Imagine that. The other ten, except for him, Judas is dead, know that Jesus is risen because they met him. Thomas, instead of taking their word for it, doubts at the word of those evangelists, those witnesses, those truth tellers. He doubts their word. And for eight days, he's got to live in no man's land. After eight days, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus to the doors being, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Very same thing. Then saith he to Thomas, Oof, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, Adonai, Lordship, and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. In other words, that's a commendation, but it's not the fullest commendation, commendation he could have received. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. His love is proven to us as we prove our love to him Amen. by faith. His love, I put secondly, gives us purpose. In chapter 20 and verse 21, we read this in our final thought. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. It's not just that His love is proven to us. His love gives to us purpose. And that is to go out and reach others with the gospel message. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead as we celebrate this morning, then you have been sent to share the message with others. Are you doing it? The problem, as I said earlier in this world, is not the unbelievers. The problem is the believers who sit, soak, and do not go when they are told. Your life should reflect the perfection and purpose of Christ's life. Your words and your deeds should evidence the Holy Spirit of God's indwelling and filling. You should demonstrate that you are a new creature created in Christ Jesus unto good works. How terrible it is when Christians who first trusted in the conquering king live lives that look like the conquered world. Paul said it best when he closed Romans chapter 8, that great chapter of the Bible. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us so. What a truth. In closing this morning, Jesus Christ is the King of life. On this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the whole reason believers have hope in this world. We rejoice in the fullness of God's salvation plan. This morning... God wants you to believe in Jesus Christ. He conquered death, he conquered the devil, he conquers darkness, and he conquers your doubt, just like he did for these apostles in John 20. How does he do it? Through his life, through his light, through his love, and all because he is Lord of all. Friends, we serve a risen Savior. Father, help us, I pray, as we close.